So if you're visiting with us this morning, about to finish up the Gospel of John. We have this sermon, the first half of John 21. Hal's going to be preaching the last sermon on John chapter, or the last part of John chapter 21. And we have our passage this morning that we're going to read. And as you read it, you might think it's just like a, a story to help conclude the gospel. You think it might be just a story about some disciples fishing and Jesus helping them catch some fish. I'm actually hoping that as we read this passage, you're going to be wondering what does this have to do with the rest of the Gospel of John and what does this even have to do with Christianity? What does this story about the disciples catching fish, what does it have to do with the gospel. So think about that even as you open up your bulletins or your Bibles and let's read together these first 14 verses of John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, "Bring, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, And have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? for they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your love, for your promises. We ask this morning as we sift through this passage that you'd give us clarity of thought, that you'd help us better understand who Jesus is, what he's done. Father, draw us into this story that we would be closer to you. In Christ's name, amen. 
So you, you all are aware, if, if you've been at Redeemer any amount of time whatsoever, at least I hope you're aware, you have, you have four pastors, and all of them like to read books, right? I'm hoping you know that. In the evening, I have, I have this particular plan for my reading schedule. Some of you don't know this, but I, I do like to plan out my days. In the evening, what I do is read fiction books. So in the evening over the, uh, the last, I don't know, four or five months, I've been reading Moby Dick, you know, the big fish story by Herman Melville. I have to confess to you, I've read it three times. I read it first in high school. I read it again at my last church probably four or five years ago. And for some reason, I picked it up again and started reading it. And I have to confess to you that every time I've picked up Moby Dick, I don't know why. When I'm reading that one chapter that's in my book, 25 pages on the whiteness of the whale, I don't get it. When I try to work through some of the, the chapters on a boat, all those archaic nautical terms, I, I don't get it. There's this one chapter on what makes a whale a whale. I don't get it. So when I was about halfway through the book, I decided I need to figure out why this book is supposed to be so good. So I went and I read a couple of articles about the book. I even got a little book about the book. And I read through those. And here's some of the things I learned about Moby Dick, who was, you know, Herman Melville wrote it, 1850s, something like that. He was writing after he finished the book. He wrote his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne, and this is what he said in a letter about the book that he just finished, Moby Dick. He said, I have written a wicked book and feel spotless as the lamb. I have no idea what that means, but it sure does interest me. <laughs> Something else that I read about Melville, you know, he, he loved the created order. He loved the world. He particularly loved the ocean. And one of the reasons why he liked the ocean, he said, and I'm paraphrasing now, but, but he said, I love the beauty of the created order. I'm amazed by it. One day I'm in awe of it. And then the next day I realize that that same beautiful world can chew off your leg. Captain Ahab, only one leg. That's when I realize, when I, when I understand or I read quotes about Moby Dick, I realize that there's more to Moby Dick than meets the eye. I tell you all that because there's something like this going on in the passage that we read this morning. I wish I'd have named the, the, the title of the sermon this, but there's more to the story than the story. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to go through some of the fun details of the story because it, it actually is a fun story. I believe it's a true story, but it's also fun. We're going to go through those fun details. And then we're going to take some time and we're going to go through three things that are maybe not as apparent as you would think to understand that full story. Realize first, if you, if you notice the beginning and ending of this passage, verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself. He revealed himself in this way. That's the way the story begins. And then in verse 14, 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Revealing is a big deal in this little passage. The revelation of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus is a big deal in this passage. And the disciples realize they already know that Jesus Christ has died. They already know that he's been raised from the dead. This is the third time they've seen him in the Gospel of John. But you do have to recognize that this is a tenuous time for them. It's an uncertain time for them. You think about it. They don't know exactly what it means to serve a risen Savior. They're processing it all. They're trying to figure out, maybe even like you and I are, what does it mean to serve the risen Christ? And during this time of processing, during this time of thinking about all the details that Jesus Christ actually died on the cross and was raised from the dead, during this time, Peter says, I'm going fishing. The other six that are with him, because there's seven total, said, we're going to go too. And I realize there's, there's nothing wrong with them going fishing. After all, they supposedly know how to fish. That's what they used to do. And they have to eat. So they go fishing. So our passage here really isn't addressing why they go fishing. It's more concerned with how the fishing goes. And it doesn't go that well until Jesus shows up. Notice here that in our passage, it's dark out. And that's important for John, that it's dark out. It's not unreasonable that people go fishing at night. But John, throughout his gospel, he's always talking about night and day, light and darkness. Particularly if you go back and you read John chapter 1, which is the beginning of the story. Now at the end of the story, we're talking about light and darkness again. Verse 3, they went out and they caught nothing. In the dark, they don't recognize Jesus. In the dark, they don't catch fish. But verse 4, as the day was breaking... They see this man on the shore. The disciples still don't know who this man is. They don't really see Jesus for who he is. But this unknown man to them, he asks them a question that he already knows the answer to because Jesus has been doing that throughout the whole gospel, asking questions that he already knows the answer to. And he asks them, have you caught any fish? And they say no. So Jesus says, cast your net over there to the right side of the boat, and they do it. And they catch so many fish that they can't haul him in. It's at this point that there's a, there's a lot of questions arise. Why does Jesus tell them to cast the net over there? Bigger question, why do they do it? And I, I know some of you may think this is so, too simple, but the fact of the matter is one of the reasons at least Jesus told them to cast the net over there on the other side of the boat is because he knew where the fish were. The, the bigger question is, why do the disciples do it even though they don't know it's Jesus? And, and if you were to go back and you'd read all the commentaries, there, there are pages and pages of why people think Jesus or, or the disciples do what Jesus say. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know. But, but I do know this, I have been fishing before. I have been fishing before often and not caught any fish. And it always happens when I'm fishing and don't catch any fish, there's always somebody there asking me if I caught on any fish. And I tell them, no, I haven't caught any fish. And you know what they always say? Try casting over there. And I try casting over there. 
Anyway, the, the reason why I'm bringing up some of these questions is there's a lot of things that we don't know for certain in this passage. Right? We're going to talk a little bit more about them, but, but it's really not the point. The point is, right now in the story, they catch fish as the sun comes up. And as the sun comes up, that's when they see Jesus. Look at verse 7. The beloved disciple says, it's the Lord. Peter puts some clothes on, jumps in, heads for his Savior. The other disciples drag the fish onto the shore, and all of them together, they find Jesus preparing a meal. And by the way, the fish that Jesus is cooking there in verse 9, on the fire, it's in the singular, meaning it's probably only one fish. So it's not enough for everybody. And because it's not enough for everybody, Jesus tells them, bring some of the fish they caught. That's where we learned the exact number, 153 fish. And there are another massive amount of pages on why it's 153 fish. It really is. And, and I'm, I believe it's more than just, it's, it's more than just this idea of, of counting the fish. I don't know what that would be. But I can't imagine what happened. You have seven disciples there. Two of them are saying, man, that is a lot of fish. And one of the disciples is kind of an engineer type. And that engineer type says, that's so many fish I want to count them. And they actually count them. And there's 153 fish. And they tell everybody that we caught 153 fish. And the net didn't break. Jesus says, after they pull the fish on the shore, he says, come and have breakfast. And the disciples don't have to ask. They are so certain they are sitting with the resurrected Jesus. Things are coming together for them. Now, that's the story. <clears throat> I believe it's a true story. I believe there were 153 fish. I believe that Jesus told them exactly where to throw the net because he knew where the fish were. After all, he's been raised from the dead. He can certainly figure out where fish are. So he tells them, there are the fish. I think the disciples do it because they didn't know what else to do. They weren't catching any fish. They catch the fish. I, it's a really true story. We get all caught up in some of these questions. Why did Jesus say that? Why did the disciples respond to some unknown guy on the shore? I mean, a really fun question is, why does Peter put on clothes? I mean, it's pretty reasonable to me. He was probably hot. And he wanted to meet Jesus, and he didn't want to do it without his shirt. You come to my door, and I'm hanging out in the house, and I don't have a shirt on. I'm putting a shirt on. It's a great story, okay? I have all these questions. And the problem is, even if we knew all the answers to all these questions, it has very little to do with why John is telling the story. You want to know why John's telling the story? John is telling us, he wants us to understand that when you see Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, God become man, raised from the dead, when you really see him and seeing in the Gospel of John is believing and trusting in him, it might be a little bit uncomfortable. You might not have all the answers that you would like to have, but when you meet Jesus, everything in your life changes. Everything in your present life changes. Everything about your past changes. And where you're going in the future is changed as well. That's why John is telling us this story. So what we're going to do in the next few minutes that we have is we're going to look at 
What are we doing in our lives today if Jesus Christ is really raised from the dead? What is it that we are doing? Secondly, how does your past come into play? Because we all have a past, don't we? If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, how does our past come into play? And then lastly, where are we going? All in terms of believing and seeing Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So the first question is, and I'm going to ask you because I've had to ask me, what are you doing with your life? You realize this story is not about fishing and it's not about catching fish. It is not about fish at all. This, throughout the Bible, fishing is about people and the world. And by the way, the the world here is the sea. And you know, in the Bible, the sea is chaos. Habakkuk 1.14, God makes mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. And he brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in and he rejoices and is glad. This is not about fishing. Fishing is about the mission of God and our part in that mission. And God is gathering a people to experience life with Him. And we're called to join Him in that work. You realize that's why we gave you an announcement about Vacation Bible School. That's why we gave you an announcement about the golf tournament. That's why we gave you an announcement about the the Low Country Boil. It's not about the the fish that you're going to eat at the Low Country Boil, as good as that's going to be. It's about the mission of God. You might really be fisherman or fisherwoman. I was thinking about when I was preparing the sermon. I don't think anybody makes a living fishing in Athens. But you might be a doctor. You might be a teacher. You might be a student. Whatever it is you are, a mom, a dad, a child, married, single, divorced, widowed, whatever it is you do, when you know that Jesus Christ is alive, you are much more than whatever it is you do. If you've met, if you've seen, if you believe in a risen Savior, you're not just building houses as important as it is to build houses. If you've met a risen Savior, you're not just raising a family as important as it is to raise a family. You're not just going to school, you young people. You're not just going to school as important as school is. You're part of something much bigger than you ever thought. And I thought about it, I could spend a lot of time trying to flesh this out for you, but first of all, if you haven't met the risen Savior, it really doesn't matter. If you haven't met the risen Savior, then your life is about you, and that's okay. If you haven't met the risen Savior, you're not going to do a bunch of things anyway. But if you have met the risen Christ, you have to know that your life is about more than you. It's about more than yourself. It's about more than your family. It's about more than your money. It's about more than your fun. It's about other people and bringing them into the kingdom of God. That's what this story is about. And we all have to confess, it's really hard to remember that because the first thing, my default mode when I wake up in the morning is, I want it to be about me. What are we doing with our lives? Hey, look, even when we come to church, why did you come to church this morning? You come to church because that's what good people do? 
Or did you come to church this morning to meet with God, and as you meet with God, you're concerned about all these other people around you? You know, I, I don't know all these people. I, I don't have my glasses on, so I, I can't really say for sure. But I, I know there are people out here that I don't know. And if you've seen the risen Savior, and there's somebody out there that you don't know, and you've been at Redeemer for more than two years, you ought to be making a trail. Hey, i got to know you. Because I've met the risen Savior, and I want to make sure that you've met him too. Think about that. Look, maybe part of the problem is this. Maybe part of the problem is we haven't sat down beside a charcoal fire like Peter does here. So this is the second big idea. When you've seen Jesus Christ, your present is changed. What you're doing now, because your past has been made new. You may not remember this, but back in John 18, the last time Peter sits by a charcoal fire, it was prepared by the enemies of the Lord. The last time Peter sits around a fire like this, he betrayed Jesus. He ran away from Jesus. And this time, Peter is warming himself by a fire that's prepared by Jesus himself. And this time, we see him running or swimming, doing anything he can to be in the presence of Jesus. Peter gives us a picture of what it means to understand and see God's grace in the midst of a terrible failure. Even after, after all the failures of our lives, Jesus is still there. Peter doesn't make excuses for his sin. He confesses his sin. He repents, and he swims with all his might to get to Jesus. And, and you have to remember, this is going to be very interesting, because this, our, next, our next sermon that Hal's going to preach, this is when Jesus sits down with Peter, and they have a one-on-one -on -one conversation basically about his betrayal. So right now, it looks like Peter doesn't even know exactly how Jesus is going to respond to all this. He, he may not be sure of where he stands with Jesus, but it doesn't matter to Peter because it, it, everything in life doesn't matter if he can't go back to the risen Savior. It's, it's kind of like Jacob in the Old Testament wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Jacob basically says, <clears throat> I'm not going to let you go until you bless me or you kill me. Because if you don't bless me, I'm as good as dead. That's the picture that Peter is here. If he doesn't have his Jesus, even after his great failure, then he has no hope for his life. For Peter, his past was bad, but Jesus was bigger and better. And I want to say it like this. Peter's present focus in life changes because he's realized that God has transformed his past in the person of Jesus Christ. Our present focus in life changes because of what God in Christ has done with our past. Are you aware, are you aware of what God does through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to everything and anything that you've done in the past. It doesn't go away. It's part of you. But it's transformed into something good, something powerful, something real. When we see Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, God become man, raised from the dead, it changes everything. It changes what we're doing now in the present. Our past is transformed. And then lastly, 
The risen Christ is in the business of taking our past, taking our present, and forging ahead with our future. He's taking us somewhere good. We, we met yesterday as a session with some training, and we realized that God has a vision for Redeemer. And we want to follow wherever he wants us to go. Do you know God has a vision for your life too? As an individual. I, I need you to notice this. Je- Jesus, This is fascinating. Jesus never intends to prepare this meal on his own. He does not have enough fish for everybody. And by the way, he could have. He could have had plenty of fish. He only has evidently one fish, or not, it's, it's very evident, not enough fish to feed everybody. So he tells his disciples, I need your fish too. He says, give me the fish you caught. But you know, that's not technically correct. They didn't catch any fish. All they did was listen to Jesus do what he said, and the fish come. All they did is do what Jesus said, even before they were sure, even before they were certain. We have a tendency to say the Christian life is really complex. And I will agree with you, there is some complexity to the Christian life. We don't know everything that we need to do. But you know, beyond that complexity, there's a simplicity to the Christian life. And that simplicity is there's a lot of things that God tells us to do, and we just need to do it. Jesus says, give me the fish you caught. It points to the nature of our involvement in God's plan for the world. Do you you realize this is a big deal? God doesn't need us, but he wants us to join him. He wants us to experience being a part of his vision for the world. And the disciples are coming to grips with, now they're a part of what the risen Savior is doing. That's why in Acts, you know, the disciples who are not sure what's going on here, a little bit later in the next book of the Bible, they're described as turning the world upside down. They're sharing in Jesus' resurrection power. I I, I do, This this is not in my notes. I do meet a lot of people in this congregation who understand grace, God's grace. And that's great, because this is all about God's grace. But they they, they understand God's grace in a way that leaves, leaves them resigned to their present failures in life. They say things like, I know I should do that, but thank goodness for God's grace. I don't think God's grace resigns us to anything. God's grace empowers us to do things that we never thought we could possibly do. It's the power of Christ's plan for us. It's Jesus' life in us. You do realize the problem in this passage is not a lack of fish. You could say it like this. The problem is in this passage is not even the disciples' lack of faith. The problem in this passage is whether or not they see and believe in Jesus Christ. And when they really see Jesus, when they really believe Jesus, they understand that they'll do whatever they have to do. 
Because with Jesus, the future's secure. They can finally rest. Do you see them resting in this passage? They sit down and they have a meal with Christ. It's a promise that God is with us always and forever. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. Come and have a meal with me. In other words, you know what he says? If you don't get fed by me, there's no way that you're going to be able to do what I'm about to call you to do. Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. Come and have a meal with me because this is going to be really, really hard work and I need to feed you. Are you being fed by Christ? Are you looking to Christ for your nourishment? Because Jesus has his people, he's got everything under control, and when we meet and we believe and we see the resurrected Lord, what we're doing now in the present changes significantly. Not what it is you're doing, but how you're doing it and and the reason that you're doing it. Your past has been transformed, right? Everybody has this baggage that you bring with us. When you meet the risen Savior, it's been transformed into something that he can use. Then lastly, when you meet the risen Christ, you're going somewhere with him. See, John is saying now is the time for the followers of Christ to adjust to a new reality. And that new reality is Jesus Christ was dead and he hung on a cross and now he's been raised from the dead and everything in the world has changed. I'm about to pray. And then after I pray... We're about to have a meal with the risen Savior. I need you Christians to think about this. I need everybody to think about this. I'm sorry. We're about to have a meal, if you're a Christian, with the risen Savior so that we can be nourished as God's people. This is not something that we just do. This is something that we do each and every Sunday because we believe that God meets us in a unique way. And when you come to the table this morning, I want you to think about the disciples sitting down and Jesus giving them bread and fish. Because he's saying to them, I'm calling you to a whole new way of life. And you're not going to be able to do it unless you know me, meet me, and be fed by me. And what we're saying, in effect, is when we come to the table, we are remembering how our past has been changed because Jesus died on the cross for us. Your past, if you believe in Jesus, your past has been changed changed because he's hung on the cross. He's paid for your sin. We remember how our present lives now have purpose, and they have purpose because he didn't remain in the grave. He's been raised from the dead. And the last thing that we remember is our future is more secure than we ever could imagine because Jesus Christ is coming back. That is the gospel. That's what has to center us as a community of God here at Redeemer. And it all surrounds the Word of God and the sacraments, pictures of the Word. This is the new reality. Let's pray. Father, God, our Lord, our King, we, we, we sit amazed at the beauty of Your Word, the power of Your Word, 
that proclaims Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I, I don't know where each and every one in this building stand with you, but I pray that you would work powerfully in, in the lives of your people and in the lives of others that may not have come to know you yet. I pray that they would see Jesus Christ died, raised from the dead, who will come back and make all things right. Be with us now as we continue to worship, as we think about resting in this meal that Jesus shares with us. In whose name we pray. Amen.